uh, who was the Apostle John, wrote the Gospel of John, which is a story of Jesus' life. He wrote the letters 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Um, and now is uh, basically, because of his faith, been exiled to the island called Patmos, um, where he, on the Lord's Day, which you know was a Sunday in their day, um, in Revelation chapter 1, basically is having church by himself because, again, he's been exiled. And the point of exile is to get you away from everybody. And so he's basically having church by himself. Um, Jesus shows up when he's having his kind of church quiet time, which would be just kind of crazy. Uh, I can't imagine, like, what would we do if Jesus actually like, showed up? We're sitting you know, praying, worshiping, and all of a sudden this dude, you know, just stereotypical, had like a white robe on, you know, came in, like glowing, <laughs> like... Like, it's hard to imagine, like, how would it react? Like, I would probably faint um, if that happened. And so Jesus shows up, and John falls over as if dead when he realizes what's going on. And the first thing that Jesus does, besides basically says, like, stand up, um, is to say, I have some letters to some churches, and specifically in the providence of Asia Minor, mostly what is today modern Turkey. Uh, and he says, I have some letters, or I have some thoughts to these churches, and addresses the seven different churches in the book of Revelations chapter 2 and 3. And in doing so, has a mixed bag for four of the seven churches. That's four of them had positives and negatives. And he would say, you've done this well, but this I have against you. Two of them were nothing but positives, and one of them was nothing but negatives. So let's just kind of pray that we're not that church. Um, and as he would speak to the church, he would basically um, have some things of correction, have some things of, of encouragement. And the idea behind this was not that God um, is mad at you, not that God hates anybody. The idea was is Jesus wants his church to be a reflection of who he is. And the church is a collection of individual followers. In other words, everything he wrote to the church... He wrote to individuals. Furthermore, Jesus knows what's happening in the churches. Jesus knows what's happening, what the positives are, what the negatives are, what the strengths are, what the weaknesses are. Jesus knows what's happening inside of each church. In fact, in this week and in next week, Jesus talks about individuals that are in the church this week in a positive connotation, next week in a negative connotation, which means if you're causing drama, Jesus knows, you know? So it's kind of like Santa, like, you know, better watch out, better not cry. Jesus is on the lookout. So when Jesus sees the church, he knows what's going on. He has some stuff to say. And throughout these letters, there are things that we learn. There are things that we understand. There are, there are things that we can grow from, that we can be encouraged in, and that we can be challenged and convicted and compelled by. Now, this week he's talking to the church at Pergamum. Pergamum is one of the mixed bags of, um, of positives and negatives. There's some good things that are going on in, in Pergamum and some bad things that are happening in Pergamum. But if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to Revelation chapter 2 as we're starting to, to read this together. Chapter, 12, or chapter 2, verse 12. He says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write. <clears throat> now, angel, when he says that... The, the, talked about this the last couple weeks, but if you haven't been here, this is a little bit of catch up. He's saying basically to the spiritual leader, some people think that meant elder pastor, something that some people think that, that meant an angel, that there is an angel over and watching over for and helping out with and fighting for the spiritual battles of every church. Basically saying to the spiritual leadership of the church, here's what I know about your church. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged Sword. Now, this isn't like, you know, Jesus, princess warrior. He's just, you know, carrying a sword around and, and axing people to death. Um, I've, with our household, we're in this um, frozen uh, thing right now. Um, 
not like Frozen, like predestination, but Frozen is in like, we are in this movie called Frozen that you've probably heard of, and at the end of it, there's this guy that is about to, you know, axe the chick, and then the other chick turns into ice, and you know, boom, and all this kind of stuff, so that's kind of sometimes my view of when he says, you know, the one who wields the double-edged sword, that there's this sword Jesus is carrying, and he's just taking fools out, but what he's talking about is in Revelation 1, Jesus is described, and throughout, in fact, the Bible, um, Jesus is described, or God's word is described as um, having a double-edged sword, that it's sharp and that it divides. Now, here's why that's relevant. In every introduction of how Jesus identifies himself has implications to what that particular church is going through. And in the church of Pergamum, one of the problems, in fact, one of the main problems is they had a very difficult time separating what was true and what was not true, what was real and what was not real, what was actually of God in what was an imposition that was brought in by outsiders to think or influence people of God, or sometimes what was an imposition that was brought in from insiders to sometimes intentionally and sometimes unintentionally lead people astray from the truth of God. In other words, he says, let me just tell you, this is going to be divisive. This is going to be difficult. This is going to cause some pain. This is going to cause some hurt. Because anytime Jesus speaks truth and clarity... It's oftentimes a little bit uncomfortable. In other words, put your seatbelts on. Here we go. Verse 12. I know where you dwell. Now, this isn't, this isn't stalker Jesus, just so you know. Um, oftentimes, like, I don't think I've ever had somebody, like, say, like, man, I know where you live. And it's, like, in a really positive connotation, you know? It's like, I know where you live, a.k.a. you're going to come to my house and murder my family and I. You know, so if you could not know where I live, a.k.a. I'm going to come to your house and I'm going to stalk you. But when Jesus said this, he says, I know where you dwell. And this was the implication of why he said that. I know that where you live, it is very, very difficult to be a Christian. I know because of the city you live in, it is very, very difficult to be a Christian. In the city of Pergamum, just to give you a little context of what's happening, the city of Pergamum was the capital of Asia Minor. We talked about some other cities in, in we talk mostly about cities because these letters are written to churches that were in cities. But because the movement of God in the early church was mainly done through cities, it was done mostly in the urban context, not in the rural context. It was a movement of cities. And so as he's talking to some influential cities in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, he talks to Pergamum. And Pergamum at the time was the capital of Asia Minor. Being the capital, it was raised up on a hill. And the reason it was the capital is because it was really easy to defend because it was on a high place. It had fortified walls. And you could see anybody coming from miles and miles and miles and miles away. So a lot of affluence, a lot of money happened in Pergamum. Um, a lot of people will talk about the, the, the writing or the, the stuff that you write on called, that they called papyrus was invented in Pergamum. Um, and furthermore, this was the place of a lot of different worship. This was the worship of Zeus. Um, this was the worship of the, the primary place or the first place of worship of the Roman uh, emperor. Um, in fact, you have been influenced in some way, shape, or form by what happened in Pergamum because um, there was a Roman god called Asclepius. And then many of us, you know, I don't know how many of us walked in here this morning thinking like, man, I'm just so hip on my Greek mythology and I know exactly who Asclepius is. But let me tell you about Asclepius. Asclepius was the basic medical God. He was the restorer. He was the guy um, who could bring restoration. He was the guy who, who could bring healing. So there was a big and a strong contingent um, of medicine that was done in Pergamum through the God, or what was believed to be the God Asclepius. Now, here's how Asclepius influences your life. If you have ever been to a hospital, you have probably seen the Greek sign from Asclepius. 
If you've ever, if you, especially if you're in the medical field or you're studying medicine right now, um, you know that one of the primary ways that people signify anything medical is that there is a um, rod or a staff and there's a snake that's, tw- that's intertwined around it. That was the Greek sign. That was the rod of Asclepius. There's been a couple kind of deviations from that, and that's a whole history lesson that we don't have time for today. But hey, maybe we'll blog about it at some point. But Asclepius, in fact, if you look at the World Health Organization's logo right now, I mean, many, many, many medical uh, organizations have that rod of Asclepius. It's a rod with a little snake that's intertwined around it. Because that all not just necessarily started at Pergamum, but this, for their point and their day, was the center of worship of the god of Asclepius. was in, in a lot of different ways, Dionysus, it was Zeus, it was the emperor. So this was the place of a lot of different worship. In other words, Jesus looked at the church and says, Hey, I know... There are a lot of different thoughts and a lot of different influences where you live. I know that there are a lot of people that want to talk and want to bring in and want to impose what their religion is and what that ought to mean to your belief in Jesus. Now, here's why this is so important and timely for us. We live in a city, at least most of us do, unless you like live in Wakulla. We live in a city where we live with a lot of people who have a diversity of thoughts and a diversity of opinions. In fact, if you're involved in any way, share, or form in the university centers right now, it's not a bad thing, but the reality is, is the universities bring together a ton of different thought, a ton of different people, and a lot of new ideas and thoughts about God, about Jesus, about religion, and none of that stuff is necessarily inherently bad. In fact, I think you ought to be exposed to that as a Christian, because I think your faith ought to be challenged. It's kind of a side to the whole sermon thing. But for some of you, you're going Going through some of that stuff right now. You're hearing for the very first time that there's a Genesis 1 account and a Genesis 2 account, and in your entire life, your pastor taught nothing about how Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 seem to juxtapose, seems to kind of oppose to each other, and there's a juxtaposition of the writer of Genesis. And you read that and you're thinking, God's not real. Or you read for the first time that there's this guy named Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're all the synoptic gospels, and you read this guy named John who's like way out of left field, and you never heard that before. You just always thought, John, the, the, the beloved disciple. And you read that, and all of a sudden somebody says something about it. You didn't realize that there was a lot of thought that Isaiah was actually written in three parts. And there you, So you read the book of Isaiah, or you don't read the book of Isaiah because it's in the Old Testament, but you heard about the book of Isaiah and heard a sermon about the book of Isaiah at one point and decided that I don't know because I heard a professor, I had a New Testament, I heard a Old Testament, I had a gospel, you know, whatever I studied. And there are all different kinds of thoughts and ideas. Let me just tell you, I got my degree in religion from Florida State, and I loved it because I loved to ha- hear what people who knew what they were talking about thought about the Bible that I had always heard about. It allowed me to sift through and figure out what I actually believe in light of what all of the scholarly thoughts are, and in some ways where they're right. But Jesus looks at the Church of Pergamum and says, I know. It can be difficult because of where you live to understand and to figure out what's true, what's real, what's right, what's wrong. And there were a couple of different things that were for them very specific that they had bought into. But before we get to it, he's going to say, I've got a couple of encouragements for you. He says, I know where you live, or I know where you dwell. That's a good Bible way to say that. Where Satan's throne is, so not, not the holiest of places, yet... You hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. In other words, I know that one of the great things about you, he would say to the Church of Pergamum, is that you have done a fantastic job. You have done an extraordinary job of standing for my faith, or standing for my name. I know that when your faith was tested, you stood. I know that there was a lot of times that you could have gone away, and I know it was very difficult in the context that you live in. In other words, I knew that it was difficult 
in your family to stand for Jesus. I know it was difficult with your boss to stand for Jesus. I know it was difficult with the influence in your life, with your roommates, with your teachers. I know it was very difficult for you to stand for your faith, but you stood. In fact, he would say about this guy Antipas, the individual, which means, again, that Jesus knows who the individuals are in our church and knows you and I personally. He says, man, even Antipas was killed for his faith in your city, and you guys still stood. But, but I have a few things, verse 14, against you. Now, again, this is important to know. That when Jesus says, I have a few things against you, the point of this is not to be overly dramatic. The point of this is not to say, hey, you guys are awful people. Let me be over-authoritarian and disciplinarian. His basic thought is, okay, you are doing some stuff really well, and I'm thankful that you're doing stuff well. I want you to keep doing that stuff really well. But the goal of my church, the goal of my believers, is not that they would do one thing really well. They would holistically represent me very, very, very well. That my believers would be a reflection of who I am. Let's just be honest. If you're in here and you're not a Christian, you want this too. This perhaps has been your main critique of Christianity, that you saw believers who did one or two things really well, preached one or two things, and a lot of times it's a sense of morality, really well, but then didn't live it, or they just were missed in a big area, and you thought, well man, you guys are knocking it out of the park in this one, but completely whiffing on this one, and Jesus looks at the church and says, I see the exact same thing, and I don't hate my church for it, I don't disown my church for it, but I want to compel my church to be more like me, and so these are the things he has against them. But I have a few things against you. You have some who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Now, I know that everybody is super familiar, and many of you had your quiet times this morning in Numbers 21 through 25, and you're just so fluent in Balaam and Balak. Um, And you came and thought, man, I I just read this thing when Balak said and when Balaam said, and I was just like, I saw an angel, and I wrote it down in my journal, and I Instagrammed it because Jesus is real. For the rest of us, let me just kind of catch you up to date on what that happened. In the Old Testament, God used his nation or the nation of Israel as a light to all the other nations that this was the one true living God his idea was not to be exclusive but his idea was to be a light similar to the church and in doing so there would be times of incredible um, obedience and in times of incredible rebellion from the nation and during one of their times in obedience God was leading them towards the promised land leading them towards the place where he had promised and said this is the place where I'm going to give you and as they would go through they would come against other nations and they would war against them and they would win Well, they had some momentum at this point. As they were going to this place called Moab, um, Balak was the king of the Moabites. And he, like everybody else was at the time, was terrified. Because God was on the side of the nation of Israel. And so Balaam, who was a prophet, decided instead of using his prophet, you know, kingdom, his prophet abilities, his God-given gifts for the kingdom of God, decided that he was going to use them for his own personal financial gain. And so he got up with, the king of, with, with King Balak and basically came to the agreement that said, I'm not going to prophesy against them, but here's what I am going to do. I am going to tell you, Balak, how to defeat and how to weaken the nation of Israel. You need to set up brothels and sell really cheap food and really cheap drinks and really, really, really cheap women. 
And the sons of Israel will go and they will sleep with and they will be with and they will go against their God. They will, in a lot of ways, unintentionally, they didn't make a decision that I don't want to be with God anymore, but they would make a decision that would lead them away from God, that God would see that, they would look back, they would then perhaps marry, and in doing so, they would yoke themselves, tie themselves with things that were idolatry, that didn't follow God, that weren't obedient to God. God would be against them, God would weaken them, and you would defeat them even though they never decided that. Now, I know a lot of us, you're sitting here listening to that thinking, <laughs> yeah, so I guess I'm a Balaam follower? I don't really know. What's the, what, what's the connection here? Here, here? Here's what's fascinating. Essentially what Balaam did when he prophesied against the nation of Israel was say, I want to figure out ways that you, can un- that you can intentionally put stumbling blocks in the way of the people of God that will lead them astray. That they wouldn't necessarily intentionally go from God, but they would make small decisions that would lead them away from God. In fact, sometimes big decisions that would lead them away from God. You know why that's important? If you're in here and you're a Christian, and you have ever walked away from your faith, in fact, if you're in here and you're a Christian, and you are kind of at the season where you're, you're, you're walking away from your faith right now, or you have walked away from your faith and you're kind of thinking about and considering re-engaging one, you are not alone. In fact, Dozens and dozens, I mean, gigantic percentages of people, when they leave from high school and go to college, and they go from college into the working world, leave their faith. And very few people intellectualize their way out of a relationship with Jesus. In fact, I would say 99.9%, and you might be the .01 or the .1 that does this, but 99% of us who leave our faith, you know how we do it? We don't intellectualize and think through and come to the conclusion that there is no God. We decide our way out of a relationship with God. There's a stumbling block. And we make a decision. And that decision turns into another decision. And that decision turns into another decision. And then there's a string of decisions where all of a sudden it feels like there's this chasm between me and God. And what's fascinating is those of us who feel like perhaps there is an intellectual pursuit out of our relationship with God, it is almost always accompanied or preceded by decisions that we've made to walk away from God. That I've walked away and I've chosen and I've chosen and I've chosen and I've chosen and I've gone through stumbling block after stumbling block after stumbling block. And then I get to the point where I say, you know what, and I've always had a question anyways. This is the exact same thing that happened in the nation of Israel. They small decision, small decision, small decision, small decision. was never probably an intentional thing. But through small steps of obedience, walked away and wandered from their God. And he says, look at the church of Pergamum and says, and I've seen this happening. Because in, the, in, in Pergamum, there is this worship. And the worship almost every single time in the ancient world, um, in almost all the pagan religions, and still honestly in some of the religions today, there is this sense of sexual immorality, especially intertwined with worship. That when you went to church, that was a part of church. Now, you want to learn how to grow a church. I mean, that's, that's kind of a really compelling way to get guys to church. You know, hey, fellas, you know, let me just tell you what worship's going to be like this morning. It's like, all right, well, I'm in. Might be a little bit odd for you to hear the church. But that was what their church was. And he said, come on, you have seen this. And in their day, this led them astray from church, from worship of God, from the worship of Jesus in Pergamum. And he looks at them and says, come on. You didn't intellectualize. You decided. Small decision after small decision after small decision. And you have bought into the doctrine of Balaam, whether you realized it or not, that this wasn't a reasonable pursuit. This was a stumbling block and a series of decisions. And now you look back. 
and you realize you've tied yourself to something that you never meant to tie yourself to. You realize you have been separated when you never meant to be separated. And as he would say to the church of Pergamum, you're now worshiping these idols, and you don't think of it as worship. You don't think, because you don't have a statue or anything like that that you worship when you wake up in the morning. But you have put all these other things before Jesus in your life. He says, yeah, that's what happened at Pergamum. Continues. He says, so also, so also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So also you have some teachings that are, that are that, that's a guy named Nicholas. Um, now, let me give you a little backstory. And if you ever read uh, extra, you know, biblical sources around the times of the New Testament, there was a guy named Josephus who wrote about this guy, um, Nicholas. And basically what he would say was Josephus, or Josephus would say about Nicholas, um, in Acts chapter 6, uh, the apostles, the early church had started. Um, the church was growing. There was lots of widows and lots of orphans that needed to be fed. Um, there was some dispute that was happening. They realized they were spending all their time doing that. They needed to devote themselves to the ministry of the word and the prayer. But this ministry to the marginalized essentially was extraordinarily important. So what we're going to do is we are going to appoint what would be today modern-day deacons, and we are going to have them through the mercy of a ministry of mercies. And one of those deacons, one of those trusted guys, was a guy named Nicholas. And Nicholas's basic theology was that it kind of came to be, and this is what led people astray, and some people argue whether it was actually Nicholas or not, but that's kind of irrelevant to this whole thing. Anyway, the basic thought was simple. It was that if Jesus died for you, then nothing else matters. If Jesus died for you, do whatever you want because you're already forgiven. If Jesus died for you, then who cares? Just pull the trigger. Sin doesn't matter. Consequences don't matter. There is no kind of anything after that. And some of us maybe have, have thought about that when you're considering Jesus and you think, okay, well, if Jesus forgave me and Jesus forgives everything that I ever have done, everything I ever will do, then can I just do what I want? Now, in the theology world, there is a word that describes it. It's called antinomianism. It is the opposite of what's called legalism. Legalism says, earn your way into God's good graces. Antinomianism says, don't, you know, basically, after you've been forgiven, don't worry about anything. Nothing matters. Sin doesn't matter. It's just, who cares because Jesus forgave it. What God calls us to in the middle of that is neither of those extremes, but to live a compelled life for Jesus. And I'm going to go into that in a second. But he basically says, hey, there's some of us who modern day what that means is that we sin and we don't feel like there's any that it matters at all. We are so complacent. We are so desensitized to our sin. That we sin and we don't care. We sin we feel like there's no consequences. We sin and it's not even like God's upset because we are so okay in and with our sin. We don't even feel convicted in certain areas of our lives. Because in some ways, shapes, and forms, we've also bought into the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. That said, hey, sin and who cares? Because it doesn't matter because you've already been forgiven. So Jesus looks at that and says, come on. Some of you have bought into that idea. Some of you have bought into that thought process. Some of you have been so desensitized to your sin that it's as if your sin and my sin don't matter anymore. And that couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, this is what he's, how, he, how he follows that. Very next verse. Verse 16, Therefore, repent. Therefore, repent. Now, when he says repent, how we sometimes not necessarily interpret that, but how we practice that is so, therefore, go and feel bad as you walk out in the parking lot. Therefore, go and be nice to your waiter or waitress and feel bad for a second and talk about it a little bit in the community group, but then go right back into the same thing. 
He said, no, therefore, I want you to realize that I was living this way, and I'm going to turn and live this way. And said, I'm going to put up you know, barricades, roadblocks. I am going to put up accountability. I am going to live in community. I'm going to live in transparency because I know that I should not be living that way, but my sinful nature has a tendency to live in that way. Now, pause. Let me just make a, a brief explanation of why we live, why, as, why, how we live and why we live uh, like Jesus as Christians because this is a little bit confusing. Religion basically says... Live like Jesus, or God's going to be disappointed and not like you. Earn your way into God's good graces. Work, work, work very hard. White-knuckle your will. White-knuckle your morals. And then God will be happy with you. The message of Christianity is that we can't. We are sinfully corrupt to the core. But at the core of us is a sinful nature who God saw And God, seeing that he is extraordinarily holy, holier than we could ever imagine, cannot stand in his presence. So he sent his one and only son to die for us because of our sinful nature. That when God sees us, he sees us as forgiven, washed white, as snow people. That we can now stand in the presence of God because of Jesus. And that realization compels us to fall more in love with him, to follow him passionately because he now has our heart. And when something has your heart, it changes you. You see, this is why everything we do is based off of being compelled by the love of God, not because we feel like we have to white-knuckle our obedience. For instance, one of the things that's difficult for Christians and really kind of difficult for anybody to do is to give, if we're being honest. I can, you know, if you're in here and you're kind of a, you know, been following Jesus for a little bit and there's this cultural idea of like, if you're a Christian, don't cuss. And so, you know, you kind of stop cussing. And if you're a Christian, don't go get hammered. So you kind of stop getting hammered most of the time, you know, and you kind of decided to follow Jesus. But one of the difficult parts, I don't care who you are, it's giving. And here's why this makes sense in light of being compelled to give towards God. This is why we talk about it, that we should joyfully give. Because we don't have a problem giving in America. The average American gives more than they get. The average American lives on like 110% of their income, not 90% of their income. We give, we just give to Amazon. We give to football teams. We give to Sam's if you're in my sphere of life. We give to Verizon. We give to Publix every single Sunday afternoon. You know, we give to Lucky Goat. You know, in fact, we give so much to Lucky Goat, people give us gift cards so we can give more to Lucky Goat. At the end of the day. Here's here's, here's what's interesting. Isn't this true? The things that have your heart, you have to safeguard to make sure you don't spend too much time and too much money at those places. The places that actually have your heart, we have to safeguard ourselves. We have to pay attention that I don't have too many Amazon transactions in my email account. Because those places have my heart. They have what I want. And the idea is when you become a Christian, you are so compelled to love Jesus. You are so compelled by the fact that God gave his one and only son to die for you and for me. That he has our heart and everything we do is for him. So it is our joy to participate in the kingdom of God. She says, come on. Don't buy into the idea that your sin doesn't matter. Don't buy into the idea that what you live doesn't matter. And don't make small decisions and don't think that they don't matter and all of a sudden yoke yourselves because we've all been in those situations. In fact, almost every single one of us to some degree is in one of those situations right now. Because the sinful self is extraordinarily strong. So so this is what I want you to do in light of that. Therefore, repent. Turn from 
If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. In other words, and there are going to be consequences if you fail to repent. Now there's some conversation about what exactly he meant by that, who exactly he was going to war against. But here's the reality. When we fail to repent, especially as Christians, when we fail to repent, there are always consequences to our sinful decisions. And we can either repent and pay now, because repent is almost always a painful process. Repentance is almost always a painful process. We can either repent and pay now, or pay later. I heard a guy talking in just kind of a business uh, uh, podcast the other day. And he was talking about discipline. He said, you can either pay the consequence, you can either pay the price of discipline now, or pay the cost of not disciplined life later. I think the same thing is true with sin. We can either pay the price of repentance now. The difficult part, the living in transparency is not easy. The living in accountability is not easy. You tell people you're junk. You have to be vulnerable. It is extraordinarily difficult. But you can either pay the price for your sin now or pay the consequence later. And not that God hates you, not that God doesn't love you, but there are just naturally consequences to our sinful decisions. So he says, so repent. Do it now. Do it now. And when you do, here's what I want you to understand is going to happen. Here's what, I want you to stand under, here's what I want you to understand awaits you on the other side of that. And honestly, he's going to talk in some terms that we're going to read and say, that's not why I don't read the Bible, because that's just ridiculous. Here's what he says. So he who has an ear, verse 17, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. <laughs> to where we're like, oh, great. I woke up this morning thinking, where's the hidden manna? You know, that's so culturally relevant to what I'm going through. And this says one that's even more clarifying to them, but really confusing to us. It says, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. <laughs> Which, again, all of us are written sitting there. Sitting, you know, we had our quiet time this morning saying, Jesus, if I could just receive a stone with a little pet name written on it, you know? And nice, you know, chirp, tweet, you know, and oh my gosh, God, I love you so much. That's my, that's our cute little thing. Here's what, here's what that means. As he says, that you'll receive some of the hidden manna. The idea was, is in the Old Testament, God, when has he led the nation of Israel through the desert, um, fed the nation of Israel with, with manna, and as he did that, that was their life blood basically that's how they ate in john chapter 6 jesus says i am the bread of life that whoever eats me whoever takes me will never die that i am the bread of life that i am the new manna that was hidden in the old testament that all those things were availed but i am the realization and the full understanding of what the manna was in the old testament that as the writers of the new testament say the mystery of christ what was hidden for generations before is now revealed to us in christ and that you get to participate you get god when you die that this is not your final resting place that when you die you will be with him in heaven and when that happens i'm going to give you a stone now Again, for us, it's like, sweet, a stone. I've always wanted a a new rock. But for them, the stone represented when when an athlete won a big victory, they would oftentimes get a white stone with their name written on it. So you, I will give the victor stone. At the other side of that, there's kind of a double meaning because one was a uh, a religious and one was a a Greek and one was a Roman meaning. The Roman meaning was that when you were on trial and you were awaiting to be sentenced or you were waiting to find out if you were guilty or not, they would give stones Dark stone, guilty. White stone, not guilty. 
Jesus says, and when you die, you will be with me ruling and reigning. You will be with me in heaven and you will have the victor stone. And in light of your sinfulness, you will be forgiven. You will have a relationship with Jesus. And let me just tell you on top of that, there will be a sense of intimacy in our relationship that there's only things that we know about each other. Now, in their day, it is hard to explain how different this was. Because gods were very impersonal. Gods were someone to be won and to be appeased so that you could get them on your side so you could do what you want to do. There was not a sense of intimacy. There was not a sense of personalness about their relationship. There was not this sense that you and I, God and me, would have some type of a communication individually and independently. It was that I would revere, revere gods, I would respect gods, I would try to appease gods and get God on my side. And God says, not with me. I am not a far-off deity. I'm a personal God that you'll be with. And when this whole thing ends, I know it's difficult right now. I know you're going through a lot right now. But you're going to stand with me in victory, forgiven, in glory. You see, throughout these these letters in Revelation, it's this constant reminder that this isn't your home. That your home, when you die, is going to be with God. And it's going to be much greater, and it's going to last for much longer. And I know it's difficult now. I know it takes some courage now. But if you find yourself, in a sense, that you have decided intentionally or unintentionally, and there's separation from God, intentionally or unintentionally, that because of whatever stumbling block, whether you put it in your way, whether somebody else put it in your way, whether it was just a circumstance or a product of where you lived or where you're living or the context that you find yourself in right now, regardless of what the reason, if you have found yourself wandering from God or if you have found yourself that you've wandered from God so much that all of a sudden you look at your sin and it doesn't even feel like it's bad anymore. You don't even feel bad. There is no conviction. There is no sensitivity left to your sin. Jesus would say, I love you. I care about you, and I want you and have called you to be my ambassador here on planet Earth. And there is an eternity that you are going to spend with me. And so do not waste your life. Do not waste this little blip that you have called life in the span of eternity that I have called you and I have invited you Now that you have accepted me, now that you have given your life to me, now that you have acknowledged that I sent my one and only son to die on your behalf, and I have called you and invited you in to be my ambassadors, to live for me, to glorify me, to like the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, like the church in the New Testament, to be a light. I have given you an invitation to partner with me. I have given you an invitation to glorify me. I have given you an invitation to be a light to a lost and a broken world. And don't you dare let what happens here in your current context take your eyes off the fact that this is a blip that you have been invited to be a participant in the kingdom of God, to be an influencer in the kingdom of God. And when we die, we will stand with him in victory and glory, being forgiven, though none of us deserve it. And it is so easy to lose sight of that. I'll end with this. What's fascinating about the New Testament, honestly, what was fascinating about the Bible in general, when they talked about the end, when they talked about prophecy, it was almost never, we want to tell you about it because we just want you to be interested in it. 
We like to hear about it because it's interesting to us because we don't know a lot. For them, it was almost always an encouragement. This isn't your final resting place. Be encouraged. This isn't your final resting place. Be encouraged. I know it's tough right now. I know it can be difficult right now. And God does not promise it will be easy. He does not promise it will get easier. But he does promise that this is not the end. And so don't let whatever has influenced you, whether intentionally or not, whatever has led you astray, whether it was just small stumbling blocks that got placed in your way, or whether it was us being desensitized to our sin, don't let that deter you from your God because he has given you an invitation to be a participant in the kingdom of God. So don't you dare let what happens in the city that you live in, as difficult as it might be, as much as Jesus knows it's difficult, says, I know where you live and I know it's a throne of Satan. He says, but don't you dare let that deter you. And if it has, man, simply repent. Turn to God who loves you, who loves you so much he gave his son to die for you, who does not hate you, but is sitting there like any loving father with his arms, <laughs> I'm getting this Creed flashback or Nickelback, with arms wide open, <laughs> saying, I love you. So please, 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 don't lose focus while you're here. Now, in with this. If you're in here and you're not a Christian, I'm in with this all the time. If you're in here and you're not a Christian, isn't this what you want anyways? Let's just be honest. This is what drives you away from the church, that you see Christians who say one thing, who are good in one area, but just completely disobedient in another area, and it drives you away from the church. You've seen it with the people you live with. You've perhaps seen it in family members. You've perhaps seen it in church leaders. I just want to say, number one, I'm sorry. Apologize. We are not perfect. Please don't base your opinion on God off of me. What I want to say on the other side of that, that's what Jesus wants too. It's this crazy thing that sometimes you look at God and think, I don't like God because this is what I see in Christians. Little did you know you were agreeing with God the entire time. When God saw that in Christians, said, I want my people to reflect my image as well. So if you're in here and you're a Christian, please, 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 if you are in that right now, if you are separated from God, if you are walking in disobedience and rebellion, please, please, please repent. Turn to God. Do whatever that means for you in whatever sense of community, in whatever sense of authenticity, in whatever sense of transparency, in whatever sense of accountability, in whatever sense of returning to God's word, of spending time with God. Whatever that means for you, repent and turn to Jesus. Because there is a God who loves you, who loves us so much that he sent his one and only son to die for us. And I think a lost and a hurt and broken world is waiting for a church who sees that and lives it. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for this time that we have. God, I know I'm guilty of this just like everybody else. There are times in my life, there are areas of my life, that I have such a strong pull to walk in disobedience, to walk in cyclical patterns of sin, to choose to walk away from you, to stumble away from you, to live in disobedience to you, and sometimes to think that that doesn't even matter. God, would you please convict each one of us right now who is in that boat? God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, will you give us the strength and the courage to repent?
to turn to you, our Heavenly Father. And God, I pray that as we do that, as you inspire us and compel us, not as you condemn us, but as we are inspired by your overwhelming, forgiving love for us, would you turn us into a church? Would you turn us into a group of individuals who so deeply loves you, Jesus, that we reflect you, are a light for you, and a lost, in a hurting, and in a broken world. God, would you use us as we turn to you? In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen.